You're listening to Drums and Guns with your hosts, Brian DeChristopher and Jason Touchstone. So we're talking to Eric Eldenius, and I did pronounce that correct, yes? Eldenius. Eldenius. Okay, so it's a long E, Eldenius. And you were born in India, raised in Sweden, and then came here, yes? That's true. It's all correct. And so somewhere along the lines there, you got interested in drumming and music in general and annoyed you. Yeah. So whenabouts was that and what part of the world were you in? So that all started in Gothenburg, Sweden. And it's probably around four. I started annoying my parents earlier than that, probably. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was the typical drummer story, you know, like you find all the pots and pans in the kitchen and all the chopsticks and everything just went flying everywhere because, you know, I was pretending to be fucking, you know, animal from the Muppet show or something. (laughs) And somewhere along that timeline, they probably figured out that, uh, okay, this crazy boy is probably interested in playing the drums. And uh, we had some other friends growing up uh, where I'd just been over to their houses to sit down and try to play some of their drums. And I guess there was some sort of sort of natural rhythm that I was born with. And so they luckily, they uh, got me a set of drums early on, early on. And, uh, and I was lucky because we, you know, we had a basement in the house that I grew up in. So mm-hmm. at least they could sort of, you know, lock me down there and like, all right, do your thing without, you know, driving the rest of the family crazy. Right. So that was, yeah, it was probably around... Uh, the age of four. Yeah. So that's, that's all that happened. <laughs> and then you came to America and yeah, at some point in time, you started playing for Billy Idol. <clears throat> yep. I moved here when I was 20 mm-hmm. and uh, how I got involved with Billy is a pretty long story, but I can try to, I can, I can try to make it short. Uh, Shortly after I moved here, I was like 22 or something. I had met Keith Forsey, who was Billy's, you know, longtime producer. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten a job with this other artist that Keith was producing. And we never really went on tour. We just kind of stayed in town. It was almost like a development artist where we rehearsed a lot. We would write together, do some gigs together, party together. You know, it's like it mm-hmm. became that kind of a thing for a few years. Yeah. And so naturally, I became really close friends with with Keith. And oops, we'll get rid of that. And uh, <clears throat> he kind of started. He brought me in on a bunch of other projects that he was producing. So I kind of became his his drummer, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And through him, I met Brian Reeves, who ran um, the Jungle Room Recording Studio. And Brian had been, been involved with Billy for a very long time as well. So through Brian and Keith and, you know, meeting Georgia Moroder and Harold Faltermeyer, all those guys that have sort of worked with Billy in one way or another, it became this little incestuous click, if you will. Uh, and I was lucky enough to work with all of them. And that led to Donna Summer and Cher and all those people later on. <clears throat> but... I remember I must have been 22 or 23. Uh, Keith telling me like, "Hey, we're we're going to start w- recording some new material with Billy." I was like, "Wow, well, that's cool." Because I think around the time, I shouldn't say that he was that had been sort of off the radar, but I know that that he's, you know he's he had certainly been off the road for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember I was being at Soundcheck for one of the gigs that we did with this artist, Nick Frost, that Keith was uh, producing. And he just kind of was like, hey, Eric, you want to come in and play some drums next week for, you know, some new Billy Idol recordings? I was just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. I've been a big fan. You know, my sister was listening to a lot of his music growing up, so. And so that's the first time I met Billy and that luckily went well. And that would start to happen periodically you know every other year or so i would get called into like oh we got a couple new songs to do and uh and then back in 2011 
two kind of important recording sessions took place that year. One was with Harold Faltermeyer, who did, you know, who you know, composed the music for Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop and all that stuff. And as you know, Steve Stevens obviously did uh-huh. that uh, epic soundtrack. Do you mind if I interrupt you just briefly? The reason why we're laughing in our response when you said Top Gun is we were just talking about that movie with the bullshit about the flat spin of an F-15 that that that's all a lie. But please get back to what you were saying. I apologize for interrupting you. Oh, no, no, no worries. Um, so Harold had written this new majestic piece for some Red Bull event. And Steve, of course, was playing the guitar on that. Mm-hmm. And it had this big majestic sound, and uh, and I got called in to do that because Keith was producing it. So that took place, and then shortly after that, I got called in to re-record "Rebel Yell" and "Dancing with Myself." Hmm. They wanted to make brand new recordings that sounded exactly like the original, which of course is difficult to do, and especially sure. You know, for Billy and his voice, you know, which has gotten a lot deeper over the years. But in terms of drumming, it was really, really interesting to sit there with those guys and try to, you know, nail every, not only every part, but every sound and every fill, like, you know. Right. Trying to get it as close as possible, obviously. And so that was in 2011. And then. In 2012, some stuff happened with with the band that led them to, they needed a new drummer. So I think luckily I was on a pretty short list. And because (laughs) I had done those things previously, um, that sort of kept it fresh in their minds. And Keith, I know, had definitely pushed for for me um, being the drummer. So we kind of went through a couple of gigs you know, one short tour, I think, to kind of just make sure everything was going to work fine. And luckily, thankfully, um, here we are basically nine years later. So, so that's how that happened. (laughs) Right on, right on. Yeah, yeah, because I'll tell you, man, those kind of things don't come along easy, do they? I mean, like yours, you know, it fermented for a while before it became a steady gig for you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people talk about, you know, yeah, I just got this phone phone call. Hey, come on out, man. You're on the road with us. It's like, oh, come on, man. That doesn't happen a whole lot. That's that's very, very seldom. <laughs> you, and you got to be really something special, you know, I guess, for that well, to happen to you. Well, of course, I feel incredibly lucky in that sense. But also most most gigs of, of his caliber will, like everyone that's on those jobs, they kind of, they, they guard those gigs like it's the fucking Fort Knox, you know, like right. they don't want to do anything to, you know, to be replaced or have, have some new blood coming in. Right. Um, if anything, maybe it's sometimes the artists that will decide like, hey, I just want to go for a completely new sound or something. And usually, you know, they'll replace the whole band sometimes mm-hmm. just for that to happen. <clears throat> but to have something like this, be, uh, being presented to you um that's just it just doesn't happen all that often so yeah very fortunate yeah and in, in a gig that has loyalty to it from what i can tell you know uh, Billy yeah, seems to no. be a very loyal person to the people he works with from what i hear what i understand i cannot stress or 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 agree with you more in terms of that like he is incredibly He's just a really, really great, great guy to work for in in, in every uh, respect. So, for sure. So, so now you also own uh, Twin Pines Recording, is that right? Correct. Yep. And how long have you owned that studio? <clears throat> so this one, it's been about a year. Mm-hmm. I've always had some form of a studio before, uh, but this is a new one, and. Um, it just happened to coincide perfectly with uh, COVID lockdown mm-hmm. <laughs> because like, it's ironic because you know, I think today's the 14th, right? Mm-hmm. Today was exactly a year ago that we did our last gig in Vegas. Wow. 
So, yeah, so to have the studio um, has been a tremendous savior, honestly, mm-hmm. not just financially, but also just mentally and keeping up different projects and, you know, obviously get to play on people's records, which is something I've always done sort of in between tours. There was always like the perfect balance for me to maybe four to six months, you know, I would be out on the road and then the rest of the time would be either at home uh, playing on people's records or producing records or mixing records. So obviously I was doing a little bit more of that than I had planned on <laughs> this past year. Right. Um, but so, yeah, so luckily I've had that. Good, good. So yeah. since COVID started, have you been having some pretty decent name talent come through your door for work to be done? Well, I mean, that's a pretty subjective not a term. Whole, not a, well, but not a whole lot of people have been here. I mean, in terms of like, I've had some bands come up and the way it was all set up was to be a recording retreat. So people can, you know, escape Los Angeles and mm-hmm. come to a place where they can stay kind of and, and live with their music. Right. Uh, in a different way than just, you know, running around Los Angeles and everyone then going home. It's like something magical happens. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, when people <laughs> kind of live, eat and breathe music together for a while. That's true. Yeah. Um, but ironically, the guy that I was telling you about where I, when I met Keith, Nick Frost, he came up with his band. They've been up a few times and spent some long weekends. And we've been doing exactly that, which has been fantastic. Nice. Nice. And then a few other producers have come through here. And uh, but you know, most of the stuff happens just, you know, it happens remotely. Mm-hmm. Just like this, we'll sit and chat on FaceTime for a bit and then I'll go in and do some drums and either they'll hang up or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> so that sucked. Done. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So Jason, do you have any questions about the studio or anything? I do. You know, as a session player and touring player for multiple um, individuals, how much creative freedom do you have? Do you have any? Or are they locking you down? You're like, man, I, I feel's gonna, it's gonna really feel good right here. And then they're kind of like, why do you put a fill here? What's going on? I guess maybe that's more acceptable live. Or uh, what's? How do you discern, or do they discern what you're doing? Well, everyone is different. I'll tell you that, and. Um... I think people tend to be more specific about things in the studio than live. Live, it's kind of more like, I think people are more open to have you interpret their music the way you hear it. Or obviously if something is completely um, wrong, that will be brought up. But listen, I work with all kinds of people in terms of, I would say that at this point, most people that, do you want me to play on their records? They, 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 you know, they hire me to be me. Mm-hmm. And so again, of course, you can talk about parts and sounds and stuff like that, but it's, it never really gets super nitty gritty like that. I mean, there's a couple of people maybe, excuse me, where that's happened, where, you know, they can get very, you know, the reality is, and I'm not saying that people should always know what they want, but it almost seems like the people that, that get more and more specific about things are usually the people that don't really know what they want. Mm. So it's that weird dichotomy of people trying to sort of control the process, but at the same time, they still don't know what they want. So you can sit there and do a bunch of takes and by take three, you kind of like, well, are we, are we any closer? <laughs> it's like, has your GPS tried to figure out anything that you like at this point? It's like, where are, you know, where are we going with this? <clears throat> and, uh, and luckily, thank God this doesn't happen very often. It happened more when I started out. It would just be, you could get a response like, yeah, no, I don't think we got it yet. Yeah, no, it's not what I'm hearing. And then, so your logical question then would obviously be, you know, Okay, so what are you hearing? What it is? Mm-hmm. What is it that you want? Oh, I don't know. Just, just, you're like, oh, okay. 
let me try a few more things. And I mean, this is not something that I've always been proud of. Oh, I've never been proud of it, should I say? But there have been situations where I've, I've had to just say, listen, I've kind of given you, you know, my, my take on this, what I think is appropriate. Maybe you should move on, you know, get someone else. No hard feelings. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm done here. Like, if, like there's, there's a fine line between kind of really pushing for something that may not be clear to them mm-hmm. versus just like downright abuse. <laughs> it's like, this is fucked up. Like, you know, I just feel like a fucking cheap hooker now without overpaying, you know? Yeah, so, you're right. Wait, but, there's uh, no. So you're on the clock, though. How much pushback do you do? It's like, well, I can make this last another hour and try something well, different. I think, well, th- there's two different ways that can really, really help the process, I think. My number one process, which doesn't happen all the time now, you know, even pre-COVID, unfortunately, my favorite process is obviously when you have a group of musicians playing at the same time in the same room, or at least you can see each other. That tends to speed up the process and not just what I'm playing, but what everyone is playing is going to be so, so much easier to figure out because you can kind of, you can puzzle it together right there and then. And it's just you know, metaphorically speaking, it's easier to see which pieces are going to fit together. Like if I play this, well, then the bass player is probably going to react to what I'm playing and, and that's going to happen with every step of the band, right? Um, that's, again, that's my favorite process and things tend to just work out better that way, I think. Uh, otherwise, if it's just going to be me and a producer and maybe the artist, you know, sitting in the same room, mm-hmm. Obviously, it really helps if the, the producer and the artist are on the same page with what they want, because I've had this happen too, where they sort of come to understand that they don't, <clears throat> they don't really know, they're not on the same page in terms of what's needed. So, I've, you know, I've witnessed you know, arguments sometimes between the artist and the producer because they're just... There's, they start to get agitated in terms of like, well, no, he should do this. No, he should do that. And then at that point, like, what do you do? Like, you're, it's like watching a tennis match at that point. Uh, and uh, so that, I would say, is the least favorite process. <laughs> so the in-between thing that seems to work is that maybe if there is some sort of demo, even if it's just some scratch tracks that have been done, maybe a couple of drum loops that kind of, gives me a, a pretty good idea in terms of which pattern at least mm-hmm. is going to work. Um, sometimes I get stuff where everything is recorded and, and I'm literally the last person to be added to it. And ironically speaking, sometimes that can be easier, but that's also because I'm already hearing what's, what's going on and I can e- a lot easier sort of hear and feel where, where I'm going to fit in. Right. Cause they've already created a groove bed for you. Right, right. Yeah. But if you're going to build, if you're kind of going to have to build a track up from scratch, then, and, and you don't have the whole band there, I would rather have, you know, the typical thing would be maybe just like a click track with an acoustic guitar, a piano track, and just a scratch vocal. Mm-hmm. Like, if I have that, I can get pretty close to, uh, uh, I think, understanding at least what's going to work and what's going to be appropriate. Most of the time it usually works, uh, thankfully, but sometimes, yeah, you just need to, you know, it's, it's the process. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget also that, you know, at the end of the day, it's the artist's record and they're, they're the boss. They're, they're, they're paying for it. It's their product that they're going to live with. They probably worked really hard to save up a budget to, to do this and so you know you obviously always try to be you know accommodating to, to everyone but so there like i said there's maybe a handful of situations where i've had to just kind of like say that you know maybe i'm not maybe i'm not the guy you know try it yourself you know or or you know i i can call someone that i think would be 
perfect for this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, Does that also cross over to when you're mixing a project? You're like, this is as close as I can get it to what I think you're hearing. Maybe oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What comes to mind is Martin Hannett telling, you know, uh, like Joy Division and New York, get out of here. You guys don't know what you're doing. You know, I'm not going to mix with the talent in the in the studio. Get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I could see, you know, how that can be a problem, obviously, and (laughs) because you have people, you know, hovering over your shoulder the whole time, and you don't even, you know, maybe you will you don't get the chance to kind of even get in, get into the groove of how you want to try to set up a mix. Cause there's always, Oh no, 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 no. That's too loud. Oh no. We need more high end on that. Or that's too compressed or, Oh, that's too much reverb. Whatever it might be. It's almost like you need to let the person, you know, put together something at first. It's like the same, you could use the same analogy of cooking, you know, like, you can't sit there and start criticizing how people are cooking the food until you, at least you've tried it once. And they, you know, you mm-hmm. know, I could use a little bit more salt or, you know, like I always say, it needs more garlic, but, <laughs> but, but to just have people hovering over you and, and constantly like, it's just, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's healthy. And, and then of course, it's probably not healthy to tell the band that they don't know what they're talking about either and sending them out. So again, right. finding, you know, some happy mediums with the, with the whole thing, not just the recording process and the mixing, but, but in general, I think, you know, people, hopefully people are respectful enough and people are accommodating enough and, and people are hopefully just happy to, you know, to create music, you know what I mean? Because there's nothing worse than being in a situation that you ultimately know that you don't want to be in. Because then... Yeah then that's not good for anyone, you know? So, yeah, I've kind of seen it all. The productivity and the... I'm sorry? I was going to say the productivity and the product both suffer that. You know, if if the players aren't comfortable and you're not happy and you can't meld, you know, and it's funny because uh, what you're talking about, even on a very, very low level of just people in the garage that want to get together and put together a four-song demo, the bullshit yeah. that they go through together in the studio <laughs> never stops. I mean, that stuff goes on way up at the multi-million dollar mark, even of people right, bickering right. and bitching, you know, the bass should be a little louder there. And no, nah, man, I hear the cymbal and you're drowning me out. You need to bring it with, you know, maybe we can just fucking put that in there or some bullshit, you know, but that, that sure. strife is always there in that creative process, from, at least from what I've seen. Would you yeah, say that's that, really true? I mean, that, you've, you've seen it too. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what producers and mixers are for, in the sense that to be the um, buffer. Uh, what do you call it? Not only buffer, but also a, a, an objective ear. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a if you have a band in the studio while you're mixing, the drummer's inevitably going to say, "Oh no, the drums need to be louder." Mm-hmm. The bass player, well, guess what the bass player is going to say. Mm-hmm. And you definitely know what the fucking singer is going to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So right there, it's like, that's trouble. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for a long fucking night. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, and then of course, here's the other thing that's obviously becomes super important in this process. Trust, mm-hmm. you know, trust and respect in that, the person that we're paying to mix this record or produce this record is going to have, you know, the artist's best interest. And they're not going to try to fucking ruin the record. Or like sometimes I get comments about certain things and it's very perplexing because all the comments can be so insulting sometimes that you think that, like, do you think I'm trying to ruin your record? Like, like, and I can't even really give you an example right now, but, but, but in general, I, I feel like the best, the best scenario is a group of people get together in the same room. The producers pick these particular people for that particular project. They know that they're not really going to have to say anything. Mm-hmm. They know that, that this is the right combination of people. Sonically, they're going to listen to the stuff and, and feel like, okay, I get it. And again, hopefully the artist is trusting enough of the producer to make these choices. 
because it was heartbreaking. Like a few years ago, I was, I did made this record. I wasn't producing it, but I got called in and it was a wonderful cast of people, bass player and keyboard player and all this, that I, I find to be some of the best in the world. And we had a wonderful time in the studio recording with this, the artist was singing and playing guitar. And they were very accommodating in terms of like, yeah, just do your thing. Cause you know, we may have to reconfigure some stuff later on or whatnot, but, but I felt there was so many magical things happening in the studio because everyone was kind of basically given free range and just like, just do what you think is right, mm-hmm. which is not that, that doesn't happen all the time. And especially with a wonderful group of players. But I, I remember having this sense of, of the artist, like I said, who was also playing guitar, great singer, great guitar player, but he had this sort of deer in headlights thing about him. I could, I could sense that like he, he just doesn't know where this is going. He doesn't know where he wants it to go. He's just hearing a bunch of music in the room right now. And he's going to have to sit down and figure out what to do with this. And like I suspected, unfortunately, nothing came of it. Because that producer is actually someone that I've been working a lot with lately. And we've become very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. So he told me exactly what went down. And it was just like, it's just heartbreaking. When, yeah, what a shame. When, yeah, and it's not, it's not anyone's fault. Right, just, right. It just happens. Yeah, is the, it, the, is the mojo wasn't there and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so then it's like, yeah, is it premature to go into the studio or do you need to have something more clearly written? Because these days I hear more and more people, they just go in and jam and then they have some fucking DJ guy cut up a bunch of tracks. Maybe it's more modern music that's being done this way. But like the songs aren't necessarily finished, Uh you know. And I'm not I'm not saying that they have to be, you know, there's obviously, again, something creative and cool that can happen if hey, here's, here's like the blueprint. And now let's build the house together kind of a thing. Right. But at least if you have that, as opposed to, you know, someone is fucking putting in a window onto a structure that doesn't even exist. You know, like you're kind of starting backwards. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of great analogies today, don't I? I've talked about <laughs> foundation and building houses and cooking. <laughs> let's see what else I've come up with. More garlic, more garlic. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the moral of the story is more garlic. <laughs> I was going to ask when it comes to uh, playing other people's material, are you are they using your drum sounds? Are you triggering a bank of sounds? What's the default? Or is there a default? You mean in the studio? Yes. No, they're all my drum sounds, and I do all my engineering myself. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously, along with the producer or the artist, pick out, you know, maybe different cymbals or different snare drums that will work better for a particular track. And but I also experiment with a lot of different ways of micing the drum kit because it doesn't always have to be the same. You know, every record is not going to. I mean, every like one microphone technique is not going to work for every record, obviously. So. So, mm-hmm. no, I think luckily I. I have a lot of trust from people in that. So that's usually, usually never a problem. And when we play live, I've never really played with anyone that uses uh, triggers. So, oh, nice. yeah, uh, I would say 90% of, of the show with Billy, I'm on a click sometimes because we have, you know, some drum loops and stuff like that happening mm-hmm. or just some, some sounds that are just so outrageous from the records that they need to be, <laughs> you know, like all the, the, the massive hand claps and flesh for fantasy and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Right. We're not going to fucking hire someone as a stand and do those hand claps, you know, right. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so if there's anything, it's like a lot of those signature sounds that are so uh, identifying when it comes to some of his songs that we'll have those playing along with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a few songs that we don't use any click tracks at all. Um, you just feel it free form. Yeah, but I got to tell you, man, 
<laughs> Those so- the, the adrenaline that hits when we start playing, it is such a rush that I'm actually thankful to have the clicks happening because the range. I, I mean, I could, I mean, we have some songs that are up there like in 100, 180 BPMs, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm amped up, I could probably start that at 210 without even, <laughs> you know, realizing it because I'm just so amped up. And sometimes it could be the opposite where like towards the end of the gig, maybe like my arms are like fucking jello and I'm just super tired. Then it's you no know, a good to have the click as a reference. Like, okay, don't start too, too slow now because you're tired. Mm-hmm. So in general, it's, it's been a nice crutch. Yeah. Now for a, for a live performance, are you guys just defaulting to a faster BPM just for the feel and the energy or are you more faithful to the album? I would say we're pretty faithful to it. There's a, there's a few songs maybe we're, that we've sped up a bit that just, um, just like, you, yeah, like you're saying, just for energy's sake. And, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes people have just kind of gotten used to playing them faster because I don't think like back in the day they were using like like some with some of the early tours that they did in the 80s maybe even in the 90s i don't think they were using pro tools and clicks and stuff like that so i think at a certain point they had just gotten used to playing the songs a bit faster so so yeah that definitely happens yeah and you know uh having performed myself not to your level obviously but uh being a performer you find that certain songs don't translate well live at the bpm that they were tracked at they just don't. They Absolutely. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. And you need that extra two, three, four <coughs> BPM faster to get the audience to engage and relate. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's not just the audience, it's the band too. We all have the mm-hmm. adrenaline. So sometimes it just feels like, like it's dragging. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. There were, yeah. Uh, I remember in the beginning when I first joined the band, and at that point, I had. I'd copy down all the exact tempos in terms of, 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 of how they were recorded. And I hadn't really spoken to Steve about, you know, if there were any songs that they had sped up or not. So I remember there was a couple of songs that we, I can't remember what they were now, but I remember him turning, uh, turning around in rehearsal to go like, Whoa, man, that's really slow. <laughs> like, okay. So I guess you're doing it faster. It's like, Oh yeah, this is probably like 10, you know, BPMs faster, you know, mm-hmm. I think one of them may have been white wedding actually. So yeah, there's definitely uh, a few of them that they just greatly benefit from, from being faster. I do so, wonder like a, a tour that's sponsored by Red Bull, like right. band, you know, it's like everything's about 30 BPM faster. You know? <laughs> they need a click track, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, let's go <laughs> what is generating your click by the way what are you, you guys using and is it using is it time to the light show i guess or what's going on part of it is yeah and, and part of it is just like one of those doctor beats or doctor rhythm one thing that I miss with what's been with with music today is that everything's a download or everything's you know everything's electronic and you don't get the liner notes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So right, you can't right. read all that cool stuff that you used to like to learn about that album, you know, and where it was recorded and who did what and what they played. All like all that shit's gone. That's such sucks. a good point. Yeah, that was that was such a huge part of, you know, growing up, learning how to play and listening to records, who played on this, who, where was it recorded, just like who mixed it. Mm-hmm. But I read something, I don't know if they started doing it. I read that, I don't know if it was iTunes or Spotify, that they were going to start having the credits be available. Um, I don't know where exactly, but it would be somewhere you can click on it next to the title of the song or something where you just mm-hmm. say credits and at least you could find out some of those things. Um, yeah, because yeah, you're right. That sucks. Yeah, I know some artists have been releasing their digital albums with a what they call a digital booklet attached to it, and it comes as like the extra track. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, you'll have a lot of information in there, of course. 
But uh, yeah, in this day and age of people consuming singles, that really doesn't help the artist much, you know? You know, that's that's a whole other topic and and I don't even really want to talk about it because it's so depressing. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pink uh, Floyd went through that. They complained about (coughs) their... Their, al- their albums are one track to them, you know, because it's all conceptual. And, and they fought and lost. Uh, I think they went against Apple. And like, we don't want you selling just a track from an album. But like, the whole album. we shouldn't talk about it. It's yeah. right, right. It's, it's bad news. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, that the way the amount of time and effort and passion that went into putting together side A, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? That's just, that's long gone. You know, mm-hmm. the sequence of songs, the spacing between songs and like all of it, you know, like part of that magic is just gone. And I'm just as guilty of it. You know, I've, I've you know, I'm sorry. Like, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's not to say that it was a power that was given to you and you can't reject it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that, you know, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, and you kind of feel bad for it, but at the same time, I mean, I'm guilty too. I mean, you know, I like Bruno Mars. I'll, I'll be honest and just tell people I like Bruno Mars, but I wouldn't buy right. a whole fucking album of Bruno Mars. That would drive me nuts. I'd be going by the end of the album. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, but two or three tracks, I'm down, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm guilty, you know? What are you well, going to so well. <laughs> We're all good. <laughs> we are. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just, it's too available, everything. Like, it, w- it would require a lot of restraint and a lot of discipline, you know. What were you going to say, Jason? I was uh, going to talk about albums again and, and um, ask him if he has an opinion. There used to be, the, everything's a debate, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, Ford versus Chevy. In our world, it's analog versus digital. Right. And particularly when it comes to drums, there's something magical about, uh, to me, a room and those transients and um, an actual room, not a digital afterthought Bites. room. Bites. Um, where do you stand on that? Are you more of the purist? Are you like analog is definitely better than digital? What's your opinion? Oof, that's... There, there's so much interesting stuff about all of that that you just mentioned. Uh, Of course, I love the sound of analog tape. Would I want to run a studio with tape machines right now? Uh, No. Would I love to record more in a studio that has tape machines? Absolutely. So the, the, the sound is one thing. And I don't have to go too deep into all of that stuff because you guys, you know, you know, all of that stuff, which of course, in in particular for drums, you know, they can sound massive. You you have, you know, harmonic distortion that just creates a wonderful sound for drums. Um, the, The thing that I like analog tape the most is that you tend to play a lot better. You don't perform with the digital mindset of, oh, well, we can just, of course, you can punch in and you can edit. You can do all of that on analog tape, of course, but it's, it's you know, takes a lot more time. It's not as convenient and fast, but I think it's a mind, mindset thing that happens where if you track analog tape, especially with other people, Everyone is going to concentrate a little bit more. Everyone is going to commit a little bit more. Everyone is going to dedicate themselves to the take a little bit more versus always having in the back of your mind that, oh, fuck, I made a mistake. Well, we can just take that from the previous take. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just playlist that and, or you know, we'll take that from another bar. Like, okay, yeah, you can do that. But I think... I can only speak for myself, obviously, but I, I've definitely talked to a lot of other musicians about this too, and they all feel the same way. Is that it's like more like it's do or die. It's analog tape, and you're playing together. If you're the one fucking up, man, you don't want to be that guy because now we all have to do it again. <laughs> right. And even just to fucking sit there and listen to them fucking rewind the tape 
is annoying after a while. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> How many so, more times uh, we have to listen to this fucking song? Right, right. And so I appreciate both at this point. And I think I've created a hybrid kind of, of both. Well, I have a lot of outboard gear, a lot of things with tubes, a lot of things that will create harmonic distortion. Uh, use a lot of ribbon microphones. Um, so I can create, I can kind of create a more analog sound, but still have the convenience going through really good converters and print into Pro Tools without having to have a bunch of fucking, you know, plugins to save the day afterwards. I think my goal is always that to print a, a sound that basically I should be able to walk away from this and, and have that be the mix. You know, that's a, maybe a slight exaggeration, but my point is you make choices along the way where you commit to certain things in the analog world that people just don't do. And then of course, it's the whole other argument of like pretty much fucking anyone can make a record in their bedroom with a laptop. Mm-hmm. And that can be a great thing, but that's, so again, it, it, I guess it all depends on, a lot of it depends on what type of music it is. If you're playing you know, 60s rock and roll or jazz, well, chances are you want to play all in the same room and record to tape. But you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to make the next Billie Eilish record, then you don't have to. Billie Eilish, not Billie Idol, Billie right. Eilish. There's still that thing. There's that, you know, with, with analog, yeah, it's, you got to do it right, you know? And, and you know, so piggybacking on what you were saying, it's that mindset of going in there and do it right because you don't want to be the asshole. And, you know, Sorry, in I'll some ways, disappear there again. You're back. in some ways, too, the, the working analog versus digital, you're almost more creative, I think, in an analog world because there's not 300 ways to get to that point. And sometimes I know I'm guilty of like, gosh, which plugin do I use to get what I'm hearing? You know, it's like, oh, I'll try this other one next. It's like, just commit and, and move on. And yeah. the analog does that. Like, like you were saying, Eric, it's you commit and you more get it right in fewer tries. But I, I don't know, you know that you get I a better performance. So. Um, I well, think you I may guess, get more It's, it's the mindset. Yeah, mm. it, it's, it, I think it's a combination of all of it, you know, to be honest. And I think it's also very individual and subjective to how you approach it. Um, I even, you know, because I also play, you know, guitar and piano and bass and stuff. So even when I you know, track for other people on those instruments. Um, I will be damned to play the whole take through. Now, that usually happens if I'm sitting here by myself overdubbing on someone's track, but I will see that as part of the challenge. Hmm. Not to just conveniently just, you know, loop a couple of bars or punch in here, or edit everything to, you know, uh, it's just, sounds like a broken track mm-hmm. but so <clears throat> i don't always have the luxury of doing it but i really really push myself to play all the way through so and you know what you're laying to me what i'm hearing is you are very concerned with the feel well, like loop, just creating a loop isn't the same thing there are no, variances of course not. yeah you lose the organics when you create loops yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, sometimes I will create loops just with my own playing, but it will be like maybe, you know, it won't be a one bar loop. Maybe it's a four or eight bar mm-hmm. loop, but it's at least I know that it's me playing and I've, you know, added some funky elements to it and whatnot that, that can work in the context of a traditional song. But it's not just the, the feel. Oh my God, sorry. Things are happening here. <laughs> it's it's not just the, f- the feel obviously that i'm concerned about it's almost like a pride thing too to you know like if i sit on the piano and play a song from beginning to end that's now making me a much better piano player mm-hmm. and the same thing with all the other instruments too 
So it's like, it, it's not just a performance thing, it's also a constant learning process. And like I said, if I can indulge myself with the time, I'll see it as a test, mm-hmm. you know? And there's, mm-hmm. I'll sleep a little bit better that night, knowing that I fucking, you know, I was able to play that song from top to bottom, as opposed to, you know, combining 10 different takes or, you know, punching in 70 different times. I think it's a combination of work ethic and personal pride. You know what I mean? Without a doubt. Without a yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I <clears throat> I won't make this about me or anything, but uh, I have a quick story. Please do. Oh, okay. Oh, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I like that. So uh, <clears throat> I won't name the guy's name, but a famous guitar player that I, that I have adored for years. And I finally had the opportunity to meet him. And I was playing guitar at the time, strangely enough. But uh, he goes, what did you just do? And I thought he was interested in what I had just accomplished on the guitar. And so I played it again. And he goes, play that again. And so I did. And he goes, could you do it another time? I said, yeah. So I played it again. And he goes, don't ever lose that. And I said, what, the riff? And he goes, fuck the riff. The riff's irrelevant. He goes, what I'm talking to you about is anybody can do this. Meaning on a guitar, right? Anybody can move their fingers really fucking fast. What very few people can do is find a groove, set in that groove, and play that same groove consistently four times in a row. Right, right. And that, that you know, of course, well, then I had to become the best rhythm player I could ever be. You know, screw leads. I'm going to be a rhythm player, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because it's the, the work ethic and the pride kicked in then, right? You know, because you had that, that little push and then, yeah. I think we can probably all look back and hopefully have some of those memories where someone right. has kind of maybe saw some potential in us. Right. And just like, hey, let me fast track you by 20 years by telling you this. You're going to you're going to hate me right now, but you're going to thank me down the road when you're old enough to understand what it is that I just told you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, patterns. (laughs) Yeah. Like when you are performing. And that song comes up that you absolutely dread by that artist, like how do you put the energy into it for yet another night. It's like, oh my God, I hate this song. But hey, you know, miles of smiles and you still have to grind through it. Do you do you, do you literally just kind of cruise through it or you're like, no, I'm still gonna dedicate my emotion, emotional content to this track. Well, luckily, I, I mean that that's I can tell you right now, that's never happened with Billy because I love playing all of those songs. There have definitely been maybe things in the past where, yeah, you just have to get through it. You know, it's, do, I, do you, maybe do you feel guilty that you don't perform with the exact same passion that you did on the previous song because you love it so much more? But I don't know, like that, I think that's just the nature of the beast that, you know, some songs you're just gonna enjoy playing more. And of course you can't, you know, play what worse about it just because you what don't about, like this song as much. <laughs> and what about in the studio if you're working with an artist and you just detest the song like I, just, gotta... I think we've we've all been guilty of certain things that we that we just have to do we just have to get through certain things and just mm-hmm. do you find that another round of margaritas helps you know, see, that's again that what you were saying earlier. The intent is good, but the execution was lacking. <laughs> that is almost a straight shot to that type of scenario where, like, yeah, it would probably be a lot more fun if I had a couple of drinks in me doing this. It would be less painful. <laughs> but I just know it's just not going to sound as good when I listen to this tomorrow. It's going to be sloppy, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to hate myself tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which uh, I was, we were talking about consumable tracks going into singles. Well, it's interesting during COVID and just before COVID, soundtracks have really picked up. And I know for me, I listen to more soundtracks than I do pop because I don't know, sometimes I get bored with the sort of pop song structure. Here's the intro, here's, Here's going to be the verse. Here's going to be the pre-chorus. Here's the chorus. Here's the breakdown. Here's the bridge. Here's the. It's like oh, I get t- you know. I, it's a predictable it, kick. I already know what yeah. I'm doing, but a soundtrack. Right. Who knows what's going to happen? You know. And, and how do you feel about that? Are Are you interested in doing soundtracks? Would you do something like that? 
Yeah, I've do you listen to soundtracks? I do listen to soundtracks, and I have composed for TV and films and stuff like that. I think what you're saying is also touching on what we were saying about albums earlier, where things are put together and constructed in a sense where it's it's meant to be sort of consumed or listened to more as one whole thing as opposed to 10 different individual things. And I think that's very much true for soundtracks because even though it could be a specific thing that's just for a scene, there seems to be some sort of cohesiveness in a soundtrack. And, uh, and I think that's what I'm very much drawn to. And then of course, depending on what, what type it is, of course, that's going to have a huge impact, but I think mentally that's kind of what I'm getting when I listen to soundtracks. The soundtracks I've noticed that uh, (laughs) most composers that do a really good soundtrack are going to be the guys that, have that little piece of ear candy that they've come up with that they're going to come back to. And they keep coming back to that piece throughout, you know, Hans Zimmer is a real good one for that. Um, Michael, come on, was good for that. You know, you, you get that little, that little interest that's going to get the listener's ear and you just keep coming back to it and hitting it every now and again, you might hit it with different instruments or in a different key, but it still gets hit repetitively. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's what I'm talking about. It's a beautiful thing to do, to just have a piece of music. It can just be, you know, three, four notes, mm-hmm. but it's being presented in so many different ways throughout the movie or the, the TV show, whatever it may be. A good example. example of that is, um, you know, the movie City of Angels? Mm-hmm. For some reason, I can't remember the name of the composer right now. It's just that haunting line that keeps coming back in all these different formats. And it's just throughout the movie, it gets more and more and more intense. And by the end of the movie, it's a, the whole orchestra in it. And you're just like, oh, my God. This tiny little thing has now blossomed into this massive presentation. Uh, well, you know, funny. that's also sort of a branding when you have that thing. And you, and you tie it. It's, mm-hmm. it's good. It's a, it becomes part of the brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You're right. Yeah. And uh, which is interesting. You mentioned Han. You mentioned Han Zimmer, who I always, I can't honestly. And the guy's obviously brilliant at what he does, but I wouldn't say he's good at writing hooks. He's so percussive heavy. He loves mm-hmm. percussion, but as far as a hook. Yeah. So you don't find you don't find his percussive phrasing to be a hook in itself. Interesting. I well, that's a good point. I guess. I think that I I would call it a pattern, not so much as a hook. Okay. Mm. Mm. Um, This could open the conversation itself. (laughs) Right, because there I think drummers can write hooks. You know, they can write hooks. Yeah. Look at you know. Look at look at Phil with in the air tonight, right? Oh, yeah, of course. One of the most famous drum passages of all time, which and it is a hook. You hear that, you're like, you know exactly what song that is. Yeah. Yeah, we're even even Dave Grohl's intro Phil to Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's a that's a hook. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Our drum, our drum hooks. Are they copyrighted? No. Like a riff, like an, a non-percussive instrument. I'm going to rephrase my answer. I'm going to rephrase my answer because I think it's conditional. And I think Eric might back me on this one. Hopefully he does. Otherwise, I'm going to look stupid. Um, but drums... Well, you can edit that out. Right. Drums as a whole, a drum performance in a song is not copyrightable and protected by trademark under performance right organization rules. However, if the song is constructed based on that pattern and based on that song, that pattern could be copyrightable. Isn't that correct? So what happens is you basically, you get writing credit. Yes. You you become part of, of, of the song in that way. And of course you get publishing and then of course, then the song gets copyrighted. So indirectly you are correct. But okay. it, it has to do with the fact that you would have to be part of the writing. Right. So, so that's why you yeah. get your Tommy Lee's and you get your, uh, you know, well, obviously Dave Grohl, because I mean, 
that guy's pretty much a genius for what he's doing, you know, and what type of audience he's trying to reach. You know what I mean? Um, starting yeah, from Nirvana no, with drums, I'm, then going into guitar and front vocals, you know? Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying in terms of an actual, uh, an actual drum performance can get you writing credit. If it's something that is so unique mm-hmm. that it's being considered a hook or whatever, obviously Dave and all those guys that, you know, they started writing real songs on guitars and stuff. No, <laughs> right. this, this drum shit. No, but I think I'm wondering, I think my buddy Ken Aronoff said something about, he, he played on some song and he was able to get writing credit for it because I can't remember what's Maybe it was a John Fogarty thing or something mm-hmm. where it was such a unique thing that he was able to get writing credit for it. So, yeah, and I would imagine, other... I would imagine if you're sitting in the room and you're working, you know, the band comes in and you're working out this really killer pattern of something that you've never worked with that band before, and the, the song starts getting built right then and there. Yeah, you know, like a, a Scott Rockenfield would be a good uh, example of that. The type of guy he could be playing a pattern, and then you just start playing along instinctively, you know. And right, well, then right, you're exactly. building a song. He's writing the tune, you know. It's kind of yeah. Goes along I with mean, it, that's yeah. all. I guess that's always been a bit of a sketchy thing to subjective. Yeah. To no, but I mean, I feel like, you know, if, if you're all in, in the same room together and you're starting to write a song, well, then you all have an equal split, you know, mm-hmm. very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it's been a drag for drummers because if people tell them, people tell us like, well, that's not a melodic instrument. You just, you just been making a bunch of noise over there. Mm. You know, so it's almost like you have to, that has to be understood. And I've been in situations where you've had to say like, okay, the way we're going to start this is, you know, we all get a piece of this, an equal piece of this. doesn't matter if you write, you know, 5% more or Mm -hmm. that guy writes 15% less. Like, no, we're all in here doing this together. So I think as long as that's understood, and maybe even put down on contract, <laughs> then, um, you know, I, I think people can, people can always work it out. Yeah. But, you know, poor drummers, we always get the, you know, you're not really a musician, you're just a drummer. So <laughs> that joke is just going to keep on going. <laughs> I know, it's a terrible joke too, you know, because I'm a guitar player that services drummers, you know, through my, through, not, not the way you're thinking. <laughs> But yeah, through, my, Jesus Christ. through my business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, Glad you said that. But as a songwriter, um, because I, I write songs, but I have to write them based on working with a drummer. I, I need a drummer there. I, I can't do it like, um, and I've tried where I just put like a, a pattern in, uh, well, I use logic. But uh, if I put a drum pattern in there, there's nothing to feed off. You know, I need the energy of the drummer live right there in the room and preferably in the studio tracking with me as well, you know, because that's where all the fire comes from. And that's where all the neat productivity comes from. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. It's uh, again, it's like we've become so concerned about being perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, perfect rhythm, perfect tuning. All of it has just, it's, it's, it's gone too far, man. It's like, there's no grit or dirt or oomph or, or anything that makes music sexy and sweaty. It's just, it's, it's just become too, too sterile. Not everything, but I think it's, people have become afraid of it. You know, people, you know, especially in the, in the recording studio, people, they look at the fucking screen on the waveform, instead of just listening to the music, they can see on the grid, like, oh my God, I'm ahead of the grid and I can hear it. Or like that, I can, or not, I can see it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this fear of becoming, this fear of not being perfect. That's just, it's hindered so many wonderful creative musical performances because it's just, people are operating out of fear and, and people mm-hmm. are listening with their eyes. It's a good point. And yeah, because you're so, watching the grid bars, you're not, and if your strikes aren't right on that grid bar, you're freaking out, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, 
it, it, it's interesting because you're right. You're losing something because um, <clears throat> I remember I remember it said many years ago. If you want to create energy in the song, push the beat. Mm -hmm. Be just slightly before the beat. You don't want to be right on one. You want to be slightly before one. That way it sets up the anticipation for that next fucking note. And then the sure. person's minds, you know, they're racing, they're, they're into it. Yeah. But well, if everything yeah, totally is perfectly on the beat, you lose it. Right. You lose that drive. Chorus. What's that? Pull the verse, push the chorus. That's yeah. I believe that's the yeah, appropriate that's equation. Yeah. 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 And that's <laughs> why I when people sit individually and record an overdub on top of <clears throat> perfect drum performers. Now the bass player is going to sit down and do his perfect bass performance, because if he's not perfect, then that's going to be very obvious. It's the same thing. Whereas if, whereas if people played together, everyone would just ebb and flow together and it wouldn't, wouldn't be obvious. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is. But even if it is, who the fuck cares, you know, tell that <laughs> right. to the police, you know, right. Yeah. Well, you know, and Eric, in your role as, as a producer, is that something you tell people in the studio? It's like, look, I don't need perfection. I, I want emotional content over grid uh, locking. You know, give me a great performance. I don't care if you're off pitch. You can be behind the beat, before the beat, just emotional content. And it sounds like that's something that is making music more generic, is that that's getting washed from from watching, you know, the, mm -hmm. the grids on the screen. Yeah. And as a producer, are you able to encourage people to, man, just get in there and perform, you know, let's listen to Mississippi Fragment Dow. Holy smokes, that guy was 10 BPMs faster at the end of the track than he was at the beginning. You know? And that's Absolutely. why blues is so personal too, because you're right, it's not, it's so off grid, but the energy and the emotional content is where it needs to be. Yeah, and especially if it's like, it's one thing if you start slow and it just keeps going faster and faster and faster, that might be a problem eventually. Unless but, you're queen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're always kind of ebbing and flowing, then, you know, what's what's wrong with that? And mm -hmm. do I encourage it? I encourage it if it's if it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I will turn off the click and say like, hey, this, this is just, let's try a take like this. And chances are it could sound a lot better. Well, you Again, know, it's very category specific sometimes in terms of what style of music you're working in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not going to be the same thing if you sit with a fucking, you know, MIDI keyboard and you know you trigger some sound and then, you know, lock it to the grid like that's that you've sucked all the life out of it completely. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Eric. Anyway, uh, well, maybe you can remember it, but I, it's interesting that you you did touch on something. I'd love to hear your opinion on dynamics in in music and the tendency for artists these days to want every track just almost smashed um the loudness mm -hmm. wars mm -hmm. oh yeah mm -hmm. um, and that's something that's great about soundtracks it's not a loudness war and maybe that's why a lot more people are gravitating that direction i'm not sure what do you what do you think well again there are so many things about that uh that play into why certain you know people need to have certain mixes just completely brick walled you know without any room for dynamics again it's part of it i think is fear that you know when their song comes on the radio or on itunes or whatever if it's not as loud as the song before it's not going to have as much impact and it's not going to come across as sounding as good which of course is kind of a ridiculous statement, but I hear that a lot from people. I, I can see the argument. And I, as a person who has done very little, <laughs> but I would disagree <laughs> with it. I would disagree with that stance definitely, because yeah, I think when it's, yeah, of course, um, you can take a really well recorded song. I mean, like I, I listen to a lot of different stuff. I used to just strictly metal or hard rock, but now I'm very vast and, and you can take like a recording from say like Al Demiola hmm. where you can hear every single instrument in its own breathable space. And you're going, now that's a recording. Then you take a yeah. band like hell. Yeah. And stick them on. And it's just, you know, and you're just right. like, man, I feel spent right. by the end of the song, you know, 
Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, pain, it's painful for the ears. You know, mm -hmm. they add so much upper mid range and a lot of it is, it's just, it's spikes, you know, like, especially now when, you know, people are using these things all the time, listening to music, yeah. you know, earbuds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Those frequencies. Is that what you're are, are you mixing for earbuds specifically? Do you do an earbud mix and a, I'll, I'll use it as a reference, but, you know, I'll have a couple of different speakers that I'm listening to and definitely a couple of different pairs of headphones, but not earbuds per se. I will maybe listen to it as a reference, but I won't sit there and mix with them necessarily, no. No, but what I'm saying is that some of those high frequencies that, that are being pushed way more these days, I mean, it's gonna, it'll be interesting to see, you know, hearing loss over the years mm -hmm. you know for like the generation x people versus the millennials um if if hearing at a certain age for example was you know way down for millennials not because they're, they're living inside their earbuds with music mm -hmm. that's been made and mixed and mastered this way with um, the full spectrum of megahertz kilohertz they're just blasting your bones you know what I mean? Just just yeah. constant and, and frequencies that your ears weren't necessarily naturally made to, to reproduce to your brain. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they're going constant like that on all these weird trippy frequencies, I would imagine it's going to screw your ears up pretty bad over time. Yeah, think. it's not just high frequencies. It's, you know, all the super low frequencies mm -hmm. as well, you know, because so mm -hmm. much is like sub-based out these days. So you have yeah, that's why I love just records from the 70s, 60s and the 70s, because it was all about the mid-range. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Didn't really have speakers at home that could reproduce those frequencies anyway. So you, you had to <laughs> fit everything into the mid-range. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Yeah, now basically. Now it's like, every, like the spectrum is it's too wide, man. It's too wide. 